Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans, welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week, we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and today we'll be talking about a very special project that has been months in the making from food reporter Sarah Blaskovich. This week, we've published several stories about DFW's oldest historical and much-cherished restaurants. Sarah will talk to us about her research process and the fun behind-the-scenes stories of tracking these places down. Then you'll hear from a living legend himself, 91-year-old Gene Dunstan of Dunstan's Steakhouse. It's going to be a wonderful trip down memory lane, and it all gets started right after this. Central Market is really into food. Like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make-every-recipe-in-the-cookbook foodie or a my-favorite-recipe-is-reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have you here for our show. We've started adding more detailed show notes of everything we talk about, and you can find those recaps online with a bunch of links at dallasnews.com food. We also want to hear more from you as well, so send us your questions and voice memos via our form at dallasnews.com food or email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on, we'll be talking about DFW's oldest historical restaurants, but now we're going to kick the show off with food reporters Sarah Blaskovich and Claire Baller to talk about what's in the news right now, which is always a lot. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hey, good. Hi, Erin. Okay, so first off, um, a story that Sarah wrote last week about Project Pollo on Shark Tank um, kind of has a resolution now because the show actually aired last week. So, Sarah, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that and what happened? Yes, this company fascinates me for so many reasons. The Shark Tank fascination came later. Uh, the first, the, it's a it's a business that's a vegan fast food drive through that doesn't want to use the V word. They don't really need to tell people that they're vegan, and in fact, the word vegan is not used on the menu at all. They use the mm-hmm. phrase plant based, but you do have to be kind of paying attention. I wonder right. if people drive through Project Pollo, eat their food, and think is this really chicken? And in fact, it is not. Um, (laughs) Are people just very confused after they get their food? (laughs) They might be, um, but they also might be pleasantly surprised, which is an interesting way to start a plant-based company. Um, But this started in San Antonio and it has grown to many Texas cities, including Dallas. It was on Shark Tank Friday night on ABC. And um, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched the show yet, I'm going to say what happens here. Uh, (laughs) None of the sharks agreed to invest in Project Pollo because he valued himself at $50 million. And all five of the sharks said, that is an incredible amount of money. And (laughs) he asked them for a $2.5 million investment in exchange for 5% of the company. $2.5 million is a lot. Many of these guys are asking for 100K, 500K, maybe a million bucks. And many of them are giving 
10 or 20 or 25% of the company. So this guy's real proud of his company and he should be. They are growing fast, they're interesting, and they're different. Um, but it was fascinating to watch somebody like Mark Cuban, Kevin Hart was on it, uh-huh. and uh, he is vegan. And oh, he just said, man, I can't get behind this fast growing company. I don't think I understand it. <laughs> and many of the sharks said something similar. Like, huh. I think you've got something, man, but uh, you have valued yourself way too high. And yeah. so, um, you know, we talk a lot about food at, on this podcast, and I think that's exciting. But uh, restaurants are businesses, mm-hmm. right? So what are they worth? How do they make money? Can they yeah. get famous people to invest in them? Um, that was That was what we looked at this past week with Project Pollo. And so $50 million seems like a big number to me, and it's kind of beyond my scope of knowledge, how businesses come up with these numbers. Um, how did he come up with that? Yeah, good question, Aaron. Uh, essentially, they do some calculations, but business owners kind of make this up. They make it up based on what they think the business is worth, how yeah. it's performing, and what its opportunity is in the future. So when Project Pollo went on Shark Tank. It had about a dozen restaurants across Texas. The plan is to open a hundred in five years. And when I asked him about that valuation, he explained how he calculated it, which is, you know, a lot of guessing. Um, But then he said that 50 million at the time when this was filmed was a bargain. And he thinks (laughs) his plant-based fast food restaurant is worth three times as much now. Um, Again, this is a number that you sort of create uh, and hope it becomes true. It's it's not worth $50 million on paper right now. That's what he told the sharks he thought it was worth. But he's very proud of his company, which now in his mind is over a $100 million company. We (laughs) will see this company grow uh, across Texas and the United States. So it's worth keeping an eye on to see what happens next. Yeah. I wish I had his confidence. Maybe that's what he should bottle and sell. <laughs> his confidence. So that's true. What, that's what I would buy. <laughs> All right. So on to um, kind of another talker that I saw last week. Um, the New York Times wrote a story. It was actually by Priya Krishna, who's a Dallas native and has written for us before as well. Um, but she wrote this for the New York Times about how dining dress codes are back. The headline is, leave the sweatshirt at home. <laughs> dress coats are back. And she talked to a lot of, you know, restaurants. There's a lot of New York ones, obviously, um, because that's big there. But there were a couple mentioned in Dallas, um, one being carte blanche. Um, Have you guys read the story? And what do you kind of think about dress codes in Dallas? Have you seen kind of more of that? I don't think I have seen any new dress codes pop up. Um, not something I'm seeing necessarily more of. I don't, I don't think I'm a big fan of dining dress codes. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's important to note that they can often be, um, used as an opportunity for discrimination in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that they can just kind of create another barrier for people to have a more inclusive and accessible dining experience. But that being said, I I understand the thought process behind them. Um, I recently had a dining experience in Dallas where um, (laughs) it was was a bit jarring, let's say, uh, just the (laughs) difference between how diners were dressed. I mean, some were in Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops and others were in full suits and and, um, formal wear. And it did seem like people were a little confused of, of how they were supposed to be addressing. But I don't know how much of that is just coming out of the pandemic. Like maybe right. 
maybe people are a little rusty. Yeah. I think we do forget like how to be in public. (laughs) I think the pandemic did that to us. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm much more comfortable wearing my comfy pants to Target Mm -hmm. than I ever was pre-pandemic. Like I'm just, I'm comfortable with that now. It's like, this is, this is who I am. Um, I think that the, the dress code thing um, for, for me, when I look at the lens of dress codes in Dallas, I actually think more about what it means to be in Dallas and to be in other cities. So mm-hmm. you go to Austin and you can eat an incredibly fine dinner and wear cutoff shorts and flip-flops. And I love that. And I think that's a flavor that Dallas never really carried. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dallas just tends to feel like a more formal city than Austin does. Uh, and that's interesting to me. Um, but... In general, I agree with Claire. A, a dress code can be problematic. Outside of restaurants, we see this in bars a lot. We've had bars in Dallas that have had their hands slapped and worse mm-hmm. uh, because they enforce a dress code. Let's say no ball caps, no athletic shorts, no sneakers. And mm-hmm. we've seen point blank that that meant all these black guys that want to get into this bar are not welcome. And that's yeah. a huge problem. I think we can all agree. So dress yeah. codes in general uh, can be a little bit tricky. What I would suggest is people should dress for the place they're going. We all know what a place is going to cost before you get there. You have an idea if it's going to be expensive or not expensive or if you need to dress or not dress. And I think responsible adults should just try to act accordingly without yeah. rules. Yeah. Sarah, yeah. do you do this too? Where like for me, if I'm going to go dine somewhere, I if I haven't been there before, I'll look up the menu. Well, first of all, I do that anyway because I like to game plan what I'm going to order. Um, <laughs> and then I look at photos as well and kind of like let that inform how I think I'm expected to dress and kind of what the general vibe is. Um, and also price point, I think, for menus can kind of give you an indication as well. Certainly. Um, and I, I don't know. I think, I think that that's just kind of a better approach than having a heavy-handed um, order on what people must wear to be able to eat your food. Yep. Yeah. And most of the, most of the guidelines to the dress codes that you hear are very, very vague. You know, what is polished casual or, <laughs> yeah. you know, like what is professional elegance or like what even, does or even mean? the specific dress code requirements, like no sandals. Well, mm-hmm. so that woman over there wearing expensive wedge sandals can, but that man wearing shorts and flip-flops cannot. Aren't right. those both sandals? Yeah. You know, so I, I think there's some unfairness just by picking garments and then expecting to understand that certain people might or might not wear them. That's not really fair. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, there was even one, I think, at a restaurant in Houston that said clothing emitting offensive odors is not permitted. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Um, Coming up, we're going to dive into some delicious restaurant history. We'll be right back. Central Market is really into food. Like when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our special episode on the oldest historical restaurants of Dallas-Fort Worth. You can read all the stories right now at dallasnews.com slash topic slash historic dash restaurants. 
Sarah has been working on this project for many months, doing meticulous research, making tons of calls and in-person visits, plus doing a lot of math. Uh, fun fact about Sarah, she's an impressive whiz at spreadsheets. <laughs> um, Thank you. This is something I could not do. Now, Claire and I are going to ask Sarah tons of questions about it because her process was really fun and fascinating. Hi, guys. Glad to be back. Hi. Awesome. And so, Sarah, tell our listeners a little bit about when you started working on this and why. Well, the why is that I didn't think and still don't think that this list existed before. Mm -hmm. If somebody were to say, what are DFW's oldest restaurants? Give me the top 10 or the top 40. I couldn't have done it and I didn't know where to find it. So that's that's the first thing is, you know, I think us journalists covering a beat so deeply like restaurants uh, want to be that service if we can. And the the timing on it. So I thought, well, this would be neat to do at the beginning of the year. And so <laughs> I started work on it at the beginning of 2022 and uh, thought it might be a couple of weeks of intense research which is different than what I usually do. I usually write about two news stories a day. And, you know, I spend an hour or two interviewing somebody or going to a place and I write almost immediately. So a couple of weeks of research was going to be a long time. It turned into a five-month project. And I ended up identifying more than 80 restaurants that are aged 50 and older. And then we did a special separate profile of 15 of those that are aged 75 and older. So throughout all this, I hope that it teaches people a lot about our history and that it inspires people to visit places that maybe they haven't been, but that have been around forever. Yeah. That's awesome. And so we want our readers to soak up all this good research by reading your stories, which they can find at dallasnews.com. But so we have a baseline. What is DFW's oldest restaurant and what did you learn about it? Okay, so Dallas Fort Worth's oldest restaurant is El Phoenix. It is 103 years old. What some people don't know is that it's not in its original location. Mm -hmm. It was in an area near uh, the uptown, downtown, West End area. And it was in an area called Little Mexico. It's not there anymore. There is a longtime El Phoenix across the street from the Perot Museum. And that has been there for decades. But it is important to know that's not the original. Now, this list does not require that a restaurant is in the same place as where it originated. The lists would be so much shorter if that were the case. Restaurants move, change, close, get destroyed by fire. And so what I wanted to do was memorialize every restaurant 50 years and older, whether it had moved or not, and whether it had the original owners or not. I want to mention one other very old restaurant, Sunny Brian's. It is actually only 60-something years old, which is not that old compared to some of these other places I found that are 100 plus. However, Sonny Bryan's has two generations of restaurateurs before him. So Sonny's dad had a restaurant and Sonny's grandfather had a restaurant. His grandfather's barbecue joint goes back to 1910. So Sonny Bryan's is only 60 some odd years old. But if you want to look at that family history, the Bryan family has been making barbecue since 1910 in Dallas, Fort Worth, making it about 112 years of barbecue history. So we don't call that the oldest restaurant, but I just wanted to call it out because I think it's neat uh, yeah. that if you if you start coming back through people's history, you really find um, that sometimes these places have been around God, five plus generations. Obviously, the, the DMN, we have at our disposal lots of archived stories that go back so far, but I'm sure that that only got you so far in this and certainly a lot of this has to just be kind of like oral history of of people um, <laughs> knowing a restaurant's history just from what was said and passed down. Did you encounter that? And like, how did you even find out how long some of these places had been around? 
Yeah, such a good question, Claire. I did encounter that, and I have a document full of problem children, which are... (laughs) It's um we have we have whittled that down, thank goodness. But I probably had between twenty five and thirty restaurants on a list that I said I cannot figure these out. The mm-hmm. person who started them has possibly died. The people who bought it after or ran it, maybe they have died. Um, maybe I found somebody who had some history, but I wasn't sure if I believed them or if they really knew. Mm-hmm. The oral history piece of it, Claire, is such a great point because as journalists. We don't just take people's word for it, right? You know, we need more than that. So the Dallas Morning News archives were an excellent place to start. One of my main resources other than that was using city directories. So these are generally searchable online, but they are historical directories of businesses that used to be open in the city of Dallas in certain years. So let's say I look in 1963 for a barbecue place and I find it. Then I look in 1962 for that same barbecue place and I do not find it. Hmm. We might assume that the barbecue place opened sometime between when that first directory was published and when the second directory was published. Now, It does not tell me that it opened in 1963 or 1962. It just gives me an idea. So that's not quite enough, but it is a good thread to pull on. Uh, It also makes it easier to search the archives if you have a span of years thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I think it might have opened in 1962 or 1963. I'm going to zero in on those businesses. It also helps if you know the name of the originating restaurateur. You know, the way their last name was spelled, maybe you can find that person. Uh, One really funny thing I did for many restaurants is if I couldn't figure out the origins, I would ask around for who it was, and then I would do background searches on those people. And (laughs) you cannot even imagine the number of people I emailed, cold emailed, and just said, hey, I'm a reporter from the Dallas Morning News. I have no idea if you check this AOL account anymore. (laughs) Because the funny thing about doing a background search is you can find people's email addresses from like years, if not decades ago. So I would send six emails, the exact same email to six different email addresses. Five would come back undeliverable. One wouldn't. And then I would say a small prayer that that one person (laughs) would actually read their email because that's the other problem about email. Um, And about half of the time, somebody would get back to me. But another thing you can do with a background check is you can find a descendant or a relative. So Mm -hmm. in other cases, I would say, hey, uh, my name is Sarah. I'm a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. Is your sister Josephine? And did she by chance work at a diner in 1947? And, you know, half the time, like I said, they would reply and say, yes, Josephine is my sister. Or maybe, no, I have no idea who you're talking about. And I don't come from a restaurant family at all. Um, (laughs) But I made a couple of like nice little stranger friends through it. And in a few key instances, I found the right person, got their phone number, called them and tracked down the details. Very exciting. That's amazing. Yeah, it's almost sort of like a family genealogical history with some of these two. Like you have to put together their family trees and -and so-and-so's the granddaughter or the great, you know, great niece of the founder. Yeah, and then she got married and married out of of the family last name. So you got to pull that thread. It really is kind of like ancestry work, Erin. And I took it seriously like that too, because I mean, I feel like restaurants are living, breathing beings that Mm -hmm. are handed from people to people um, in neighborhoods where they matter. So telling these histories was a challenge, but it was also very important to me. And one thing I really want to mention is that I am not saying these lists are bulletproof. I think they're very close um, to being complete, but there's possibly 
places I don't know about, and I'm really open to hearing about them. So all of these stories are posted with the caveat and the editor's notes that if you if you know of a place I've forgotten, or if you think I've missed something, please email me, and I will look through all that history and see if you are correct. And if so, I'd be more than happy to add it. Uh, it will take all this community work to make mm-hmm. these lists better because, you know, th- I started from nothing and uh, now we have what I think is a really good look at our history that will over time get better. Yeah. And it was very um, almost crowdsourced from the beginning too, because I remember you putting a call out in a newsletter um, about oldest restaurants that people, our readers knew about. And I don't think you were expecting the deluge of emails that you received after that. Yes, that's right, Erin. I came up with a list of, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 restaurants that were over 50 years old, which I thought was a hell of a lot of restaurants. Like big (laughs) pat on the back. Man, this is a lot. I might be getting close. And I said, hey, does anybody see anything missing here? We sent it to all of our subscribers, which is a lot. And mm-hmm. I, uh, the first day I got 500 emails back from people <laughs> oh who said, you've missed this, that, or the other. It was actually, it was incredibly overwhelming, but it was so cool because these mm-hmm. were people, one of the reasons why they knew I'd missed a place is because it was their favorite place. It was almost right. nobody repping their own restaurants or PR people saying, hey, I can't believe you missed my client. It was like Joey and Bobby, you know, who live in Lakewood and remember going to wherever on Garland Road when they were 12. And they're older now. So when they were 12, that was back in the 50s. And that must mean that this place is 50 years or older. It was it was that kind of homegrown grassroots stuff that built this list. That's great. And so I know you um, kind of came across a lot of characters in your in your research. What were some of the funniest people, most charming people that you've talked to? Well, I I still I went to Circle Grill um, in East Dallas twice, and I called him oh fifteen times. And the first time I went to Circle Grill, the manager very kindly said, "The person you need to talk to is Karen, but Karen isn't here. Karen works tomorrow." So I said, okay, please tell Karen I'm going to come. You know, when's a good time when she's not busy? She said, well, 1030 because business is busy at breakfast and it's busy at lunch. So I'm going to come right in the middle. So I come and I sit down and I sit in Karen's section and Karen walks straight up to me and she says, uh, hey, I think you're that newspaper lady and um, I don't have time to talk to you. So I'm like, oh, man. Okay. Uh, so I I sit there for a little bit and I'm just kind of like looking at the stuff in the restaurant. Why not? Taking some notes. And Five minutes later, she sits down with me and spends 10 minutes talking to me. And I'm thinking, do you need to work? Because I don't want to take your time. But also, Karen, I've worked so hard to find you that I'm really relishing talking to her. Now, Karen, with all the information, doesn't know what year this restaurant opens um, and doesn't have a good idea of how to find it. But she does have all these other anecdotes, like what stuff used to cost and what people used to order and the jukeboxes that used to be on the table. So that stuff is meaningful. It's just not the big question I had. Um, And Karen says, you need to find Linda. She lives in Forney and she's married to Gerald. So I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) Linda and Gerald from Forney, they know but we don't remember Linda's last name because Linda's maiden <laughs> name was something else and she married Gerald, remember? Right. And yeah. so um, I spent you guys half a day trying to find Linda and Gerald from Forney. And they don't live there anymore or they might be deceased. Or God bless, they Aww. might live in a city near Forney that's not Forney right. proper. Maybe their kids went to Forney schools, but they actually live out in the country. So I didn't find Linda and Gerald, and I had to figure that one out another way. But yeah. Karen is one of many characters that I met that I just... um 
I have fond memories of her and her like sort of silly stories and how how difficult it could be to get a restaurant person to sit down when they're so busy. Right. Sarah, it looks like a lot of these restaurants are actually in Fort Worth, which was really surprising to me um, and I'm sure to other people who look at this list. What like did you gather anything as to why that might be? Yes, I I love this little nugget, Claire. And the Dallas Morning News writes a lot about Dallas and a little bit about Fort Worth. And I love mm-hmm. that this list of restaurants 75 years and older is like two-thirds Fort Worth restaurants yeah. and one-third Dallas restaurants. And to answer your question why, I think it says a lot about loyalty and longevity in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And then I think it indirectly says the opposite of that about Dallas. So the restaurants in Fort Worth that have made it so long, decades and decades, they've served grandparents and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. These places are still there in part because people go, because of loyalty. Um, and because Fort Worth seems to be a place that honors its old spots. And if you compare that to Dallas, not that you have to, but if you compare that to Dallas, I think we value shiny and new. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we knock down buildings that don't look pretty anymore. Um, and, and sometimes, uh, restaurants fail in Dallas and nobody scoops in to save them. That's business that happens. Um, but, I, I'm like delighted and it makes me smile just to think that Fort Worth is different in that way. It makes me want to drive over there and eat at a bunch of these places, just like I did. Uh, I've been to, I've sat in these seats at almost all of the restaurants 75 and older, and I ate so much chicken fried steak, you guys, <laughs> <laughs> always with the white gravy, always with the rolls. Um, I ordered a lot of enchiladas. There's a lot of barbecue and there's a lot of Tex-Mex among these oldest restaurants. That's another fun little through line just to sort of remember what are foods that we wanted to eat in the 40s or the 30s and we still want to eat today. Yeah, Uh, A lot of it is Southern comfort food. A lot of it is barbecue and a lot of it is Tex-Mex and, you know, enchiladas and every man food, the kind of food that is affordable and likable still today. Um, And I love that piece of it. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for all your hard work on this project. For links to all of these stories that we published this week, go to our show notes. And stay with us. Coming up in our next segment, Sarah talks with Jean Dunstan, one of Dallas's oldest living restaurateurs. That's right after this. Hey, listeners, this is Christopher Wynn. I'm the arts and entertainment editor for the Dallas Morning News. And that, thankfully, includes the food team that you're listening to right now. What I love about this beat is that food stories are people stories. Restaurants say a lot about who we are, our culture, and the health and well-being of our communities. If you want to help continue supporting this good work, it's easy. Just subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and become a member. You'll find a special offer just for listeners at dallasnews.com slash listen. Welcome back, everyone. Right now, it's time to hear from one of Dallas's oldest living restaurateurs, 91-year-old Jean Dunstan of Dunstan Steakhouse and the former Jean's Wheel Inn talked to Sarah Blaskovich recently about the history of his restaurants, his advice for today's restaurant owners, plus a few of his many charming stories. Okay, Jean, thank you so much for joining me. You are essentially our poster child for this story about oldest restaurants because you've been in the business so long. So tell me what year and how old were you when you first opened a restaurant? I was uh, 21 years old. Huh? It was 1955. What restaurant was it that you opened? It was a wheel-in drive-in on Harry Hines Boulevard. It was a drive-in back then. We had curb service, had car hops. 
And you mostly sold, was it hamburgers? Yeah, we had a dining room. We had we had short orders. We opened for breakfast and lunch. But burgers and beer was the main thing. And then that location on Harry Hines later became your first Dunstan's Steakhouse, right, correct? Right. Tell me about why you moved from Jean's Wheel Inn into Dunstan's. Kirby Steakhouse was on Greenville Avenue. And there were no chain restaurants then. But I used to go to Kirby's, on a, like on a Wednesday, and he'd have a line out the door. He cooked <laughs> steaks over charcoal. Yep. I decided I'm going to put in a steakhouse. So that's where I got the idea. And then I had a friend that lived in Tucson, Arizona. I went to visit him. He took me out to dinner. The place had Pinnacle Peaks. It had, had the mesquite pits. Uh-huh. That's where I got the idea. I came back and put the pit in the middle of the dining room. I built on another room. I put the pit in the middle of that room. And what does putting a pit in the middle of a dining room do? Why was that exciting? People have never seen anything like it. When you walk in, here's a big pit in the middle of the dining room. Yeah. And I'm standing there cooking steaks. You, you, Gene Dunstan, are cooking the steaks. I was cooking the steaks. <laughs> I was the only one who knew how to run the pit. <laughs> and there was tables all around me, you know. I could cook a steak and just hand it to them. What year did Dunstan's open on Harry Hines? 1955. 55. Okay, so how many years after it was Gene's wheel in did it become Dunstan's? In uh, the 70s. So 15, 18 years. Got it. Okay, so you had a car hop for 15 or 18 years and then it became Dunstan's. And when I built the room on to make a steakhouse, I still had curb service. Okay. I had a steakhouse inside and still car hops working outside. <laughs> That's an interesting hybrid. Finally, the steak business got so good, I had to cut out the car hops because I needed to park in. And I built two more dining rooms on. And eventually you opened a second Dunstan Steakhouse, or were there more than two ever? There was eight at one time. Oh, my. This was the second one on Lover's Lane. Uh-huh. The third one was uh, in Euless. Yep. One in Oklahoma, Box Springs, Forest Lane. Beltline Road. Oh, Beltline. Uh-huh. What was it like to go from being a kid who decided you wanted to get into restaurants into being a guy who owned eight restaurants? Well, it was fascinating. Uh, yeah, I was born in Alabama. My mother had a small restaurant there. And that's all I ever did was work in restaurants. I'm from a little town, Oxford, Alabama. So I never went to college. But people said, Gene, where'd you go to school? And I said, well, I went to Oxford. <laughs> They figured Oxford, England, Oxford, Mississippi, you know. I just, I just tell them I went to Oxford and they leave me alone. <laughs> now, by not going to college, it sounds like you learned to run a business just fine on your own. Well, one day I woke up, but the rest of it was all I knew. So I said, I better make the best of this. What are some trials and errors that you went through? Well, we don't have enough time for that. But <laughs> you always make mistakes. One of them was opening a restaurant in Longview, Texas. I should have never done that. Oh, no. There just wasn't the market for what you wanted to do? When I opened it, there was a steak and ale and a bonanza there. Up on the loop, here came uh, all the chain restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know, the town wasn't any bigger, so you got all these restaurants and just less people. Just a bad real estate deal, it sounds like. Well, I, I paid a million dollars for it and sold it for half a million, so... You're talking about trial and errors. That was the error. Yep. <laughs> and you told me in an earlier interview that you'd had your lights turned out on you a couple of times in your first year or two of business. Why'd that happen? Well, I couldn't pay the light bill and uh, they'd come out and turn <laughs> my lights off. I always said I invented candles. We'd light the candle lights. And uh, of course, I had a jukebox, you know. Uh -huh. Of course, it wouldn't play without electricity. So the customer just sang 
Oh, you're kidding me. I had a gas grill I could still cook. We had the candles on the table. Oh, that's funny. So what are pieces of advice you might give someone getting into the restaurant industry? My advice not to do it. No, I'm kidding you. <laughs> but anyway, it's hard work. In other words, you got to be work, willing to work seven days a week. you got to be able to cook or wash dishes or anything necessary. In other words, yeah, it's not all pretty. It's not all pretty. That's right. Customers come in, all they see is a cash register ringing. Thank you, nothing to it. But they ought to try it for a few months. That's exactly right. And how do you create a restaurant that lasts as long as Dunstan's has? Are there secrets to it? I uh, used to go to YMCA and sit in the steam room. Uh-huh. And there was a eye doctor there, and we'd visit. He worked his way through school and uh, as a salesman. They had a sales meeting one time, and uh, the salesman said, if you give someone their money's worth, they're happy. But he said, if you give them a little more than their money's worth, they can't wait to tell everybody. <laughs> and I've already remembered that. And uh, we tried to do that. Tell me a couple of things at Dunstan's that are giving people a little more than they expect. Well, one thing, our steaks are more reasonably priced than anyone in Dallas. We have about the only salad bar in Dallas. Which was new at, at the time, right? Yeah. When I opened, I didn't have a salad bar. Steak and ale opened around the corner. Of course, they had a salad bar. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't see my customers for a while. And I said, where y'all been? Well, you know, we went to Steak and Ale. They got a salad bar. So I put in a salad bar. Steak and Ale's gone, and I got, still got a salad bar. <laughs> you know, Stanley Marcus, used to, he and his wife used to come in all the time. Uh -huh. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Marcus, what is your secret? In other words, he built a big business. He said, when a customer comes in, he said, I don't try to make a, a sale. I try to make a customer. Good he advice. want to make sure they come back. Mm -hmm. We live by that. That's great advice. Are there other famous people who have come in here that you've gotten to know? I think the most famous one was Reba McIntyre. Oh. I'll tell you a funny story. She came to my other restaurant. She had a gentleman and a lady with her. And the hostess said, uh, has anybody ever told you you look like Reba McIntyre? She said, yeah, all the time. <laughs> she, still, she didn't know it was her. What a wonderful sense of humor. She came to the office, my wife and daughter in there. She said, there's a lady out here who looks just like Reba McIntyre. My wife went out. She said, that is Reba McIntyre. <laughs> she took a picture of me and my wife. Oh, that's fantastic. And it also, I feel like Dunstan's has become a meetup spot in the back. Tell us about the back door bar and why. You did it the way you did? We, uh, when we first opened here, you know, we didn't have a liquor license. We didn't have a backdoor bar. All we had was wine and beer. By the way, we had the first liquor license in Dallas. Oh, wow. When they passed a the mixed drink law. That's when we built that room on. It created a backdoor. And then we just named it the backdoor bar. <laughs> and it's very popular. The, uh, if people come in the back door, every seat's full. Their seat's empty in the dining room, but they'll wait on a seat in the bar. That's where people kind of want to hang out. Yeah. We have another advantage here. We have enough parking. We don't have to have valet parking. And people like that. Uh-huh. That's rare in Dallas these days to go to a steakhouse and not valet your car. i got about the only place in this area. Any other place, you got a valet. That's right. And can you tell us, if it's not too tacky to ask, how old you are, Gene? I'm 91. Did you celebrate a birthday? In February. Happy birthday. Valentine's. Your birthday is on Valentine's Day? So I never get a day off. That's one of our busiest days. <laughs> Especially in the restaurant industry. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for telling us your stories. Oh, it's just fun. I love telling stories. Well, that was so fun to hear from Gene. Thank you, Gene and Sarah. I could have listened to his stories all day. And that's all the time we have for Eat, Drink, DFW this week. 
Thank you all for joining, and I hope we've made you hungry for more. Also, we want to hear from you. We want to know what y'all are eating, drinking, trying, and loving, and we want you to tell us about it. We want your questions too. So fill out our form at dallasnews.com food or email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. We'd love to share your thoughts on a future episode. The show is produced by Natalie Kalmogoon. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.